Hi, this is Stephen Ambrose, Senior Pastor at Wapak Naz. I want to welcome you to the Wapak Naz podcast. We hope and pray that this message goes deep into your DNA, is encouraging, relevant to your life, a means for you to engage with God and experience His love, and moves you to impact your world. We at Wapak Naz believe firmly that you matter to God. We are glad that you are taking the risk to engage with Him today. Wapak Naz is love people loving people to Jesus, and it takes people to partner with us to be on mission and bring this message to our community, the region, and the world. If you would like to financially partner with Wapak Naz to love people to Jesus, join us by going to our website at wapaknaz.org and becoming a financial partner. We thank you, we pray for you, we love you, and enjoy the message. People of Luke chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, you can use the ones in the pew back there, or phone, Dead Sea Scrolls, I know that's Stephen's joke usually. Uh, whatever you got, um, pull that and, and go to it. Um, so last night, we, we were wrapping up our time uh, with the teens over 30 hours, a 30-hour famine. Uh, we had spent uh, 24 of those 30 hours together here at the church. And as we were wrapping up, cleaning up, and getting out, uh, it was about 7.30, so it wasn't too late. Um, we're going to our car, and, and Laura McRae calls out to me from her car as I'm getting in my car. She says, hey, you know, hope, uh, hope you've had time to work on your sermon this week, and you're pretty well set to go for tomorrow. And I looked at her dead in the face, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm preaching tomorrow. <laughs> Fortunately, I had just forgotten that I'd written it earlier in the week. Uh, so it all worked out. Uh, but sometimes we forget the things that we have to do, don't we? That's just a reality. So um, this morning, we're going to start um, reading out of the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, um, the verses um, that are shown on that screen um, it's too much to show on the screen, so that's why I've had you turn your Bibles there. But um, we're going to read verses 27 uh, through 38, and I'll read out of, out of my translation here. This is Jesus talking, and he says, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will also be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Heavenly Father, may your word penetrate our hearts today. As we step into your scriptures, may your scriptures reveal things in our own lives. 
May it illuminate things in our own lives. And may it cause us to grow and wrestle and be changed more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, for whom we serve, to whom we give all the glory. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Who is my enemy? How do you know someone's an enemy? You might say it's just kind of an innate thing, right? You just kind of know. Like, there's not really a definition, but you know when somebody's against you. You know when somebody's in opposition to you. But to really define it gets kind of tricky sometimes. Moreover, what does righteous violence look like? All around the world, there's violence, right? What does it look like to engage in violence in a righteous way. Merciful, good, compassionate. I, uh, I remember, um, this wasn't too long ago, just a few years ago, I was sitting in a seminary class. And uh, it was the first day of class. So none of us knew each other yet. Uh, we're doing the little round-the-room introductions. Say who you are, where you're from, what you do, all that kind of stuff. And it gets to me, and I share about myself and I tell him that I'm a pastor at a church and that I'm also serving in the military as a chaplain. And the teacher looked dumbfounded because she couldn't understand how I could be a believer and contribute to an organization that does so much violence around the world. Right? This was her, her position, her take on, on me sharing about that. She was so confused and, and she even at one point kind of questioned that a little bit and, and said, you know, I think if, she said, I think if you read church history a little bit more and you read the Bible a little bit deeper and grow a little bit, you might come to a place where you find out that you can't do that. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty confident this is where I'm supposed to be. The Lord's called me to it. Um, and happy to report three years later, it, my mind hasn't changed on that. But there are a lot of questions still that come with the conversation about violence. And even in this room, there might be many different positions that many different believers take on what is and what is not appropriate levels of violence to engage in as a believer. What does that look like? What does it mean? And how am I supposed to do good to those who I want good to be done to me when there's so much evil in the world? So much hard, so much painful. These are some of those hard questions. And really over the course of the last few weeks, we've been asking hard questions here, haven't we? On Sunday mornings, uh, if you haven't been a part, you can hear our last weeks and previous weeks on Spotify. But we've been asking a lot of hard questions. And walking through and wrestling with, where is God? Why doesn't he intervene? Why hasn't he moved? And similarly, in our times and life groups this last few weeks, um, our three different life groups have journeyed through these same kind of things, hard questions, and trying to wrestle with this idea of where is God in this? What's God doing? Why hasn't he responded? And so on and so forth. And I think for a lot of us, it's very easy in like a, a Christian cultural mindset to kind of segment the Bible. For one, the Bible does it for us, right? We've got the Old Testament, we've got the New Testament. So we take those markings already, and we kind of 
position our understanding about violence to certain segments. So we look at the Old Testament and we say, yeah, that's the God of violence and anger. Sure, he showed love, but there was plenty of times when God told the people of Israel directly, go kill everybody in the land and take it, right? God's aggressive. God's on the move. Maybe a little bit violent. Maybe a little bit angry even. And we look at the Old Testament, we say, okay, that's God there, right? And then we move to the New Testament, we say, okay, here comes Jesus, also God. And Jesus is compassionate, and he's loving, and he's forgiving. And he would never do anything bad or hurtful or harmful to anybody. Because Jesus is the nonviolent, and God is the Father, is the violent. And we get this duality. But when we split God apart like that, we do a disservice. In fact, when we split God apart like that, we're blaspheming the name of God. Because we've made God less than what he is. God is righteous. God is holy. God is good. And God moves on the behalf of people in the way that God needs to move on the behalf of people. And sometimes, just looking at the history, it, it's violent. Because the world we live in is violent. It's a violent place. And we don't really have a choice whether or not to engage in a society of violence. But we do have a choice of how we engage with that society. We do have a choice in, in what manner we engage in the violence. And so that's really kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Not just the hard questions of God, where are you, but what am I to do? How am I to respond? It's one thing to say, God, where are you? But the other question is to say, okay, what am I doing? Right? This is painful. This is awful. This is horrible. Well, what am I doing about it? I can't just put it all on God because I have a responsibility if it's in front of me to do something. But what am I to do? This lady on the screen here, uh, her name is uh, Mildred Bangs Winecoop. She's one of the founding fathers, but she's a woman, obviously. Uh, founding mothers, I guess, is a more appropriate term, of the Church of the Nazarene. This lady is one of our, our earliest theologians in our tradition. Here's something she had to say. She was in a, a seminary class, and she was talking to some of the students, and one of the students had said something to the effect of, I wish I could go back to before I, I had all this education about theology. I had all this education about Jesus. When faith was just simple, when I didn't have to ask all these hard questions and wrestle with these complicated things, here's what she said in response. She said, we would like to grow spiritually without having to become mature intellectually. But the Christian faith is not simple. Theology is not the fruit of honest problem-facing and problem-solving. Or, I'm sorry, theology is the fruit of honest problem-facing and problem-solving. The real questions have to be known and wrestled with. The real questions have to be known and wrestled with. If we want to grow, we have to become mature. And that means we have to become uncomfortable. We have to get uneasy. And yeah, there's a lot of times when I'm like, man, it'd be so much easier to just be eight again and just trust in God because I didn't know all that bad stuff that happened. My parents didn't let me watch the nightly news. I didn't know everything that was going on in society. But now I know all this stuff. 
I've seen a lot of it. My eyes can't even, even if I wasn't watching it anymore, my eyes and my mind have now had images and things ingrained in them that are so horrible that I have to deal with them. I have to process through them. We don't want a faith that's removed from the hard questions. No, instead we want a faith that has wrestled with the hard questions and come out on the other side. But it takes work. And a pastor can't do the work for you. We try to help. We try to help them pack some scriptures, give you some truth, give you some ideas. But each one of us, pastors included, have to do our own work on how do we deal with this? And how do I still know and trust in a loving God in spite of this in front of me? We have to wrestle. We have to engage. So what does it mean to do good? Micah 6.8 says this is a pretty common, popular one. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good. And what is it that the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a summation of what it means to do good, to act justly, to be just, to love faithfulness, to be faithful, to be committed, to not allow the rocking and the shaking of life circumstances to dissuade you away from something you're committed to, and to walk humbly, knowing that you don't have it all figured out, that you've not achieved more than the next person, you're not better than the next person, but instead, because we understand our place in relation to the cross of Jesus Christ, we live humbly, knowing that there but the grace of God go I. Micah reminds us what it means, or what it is we're to do. Seems simple enough, right? I mean, that's pretty short. You can put that on a Facebook post, make a little cute little Instagram picture, put that on there, and feel real good about yourself for about 30 seconds because you just did something important and significant on your social media page, right? But when we really dig into it, and when we really begin to engage with these ideas, we realize how difficult it is to act justly in an unjust world. How difficult it is to be faithful when there's so much unfaithfulness around us. That's so much easier. And to walk humbly. Man, that's just a challenge no matter what. Christian love isn't just sentiment. Christian love isn't just an idea. See, not hating your enemy is a lack of action, right? If we're just told that our responsibility is to not hate, that means we don't have to do anything. We don't have to conjure the energy to hate, and we don't have to conjure the energy to do anything else. We just have to not hate. That's passive. That's insignificant. No, God doesn't ask us to not hate our enemies. God says to do good to your enemies, to move in action. Not hating is a lack of action. Doing good is love in action. It's moving towards rather than retreating from. And that's what Mike is talking about there. Mike is talking about this idea that, that loving justice and faithfulness and walking humbly aren't just 
absence of engaging in destructive things. They aren't just not doing the bad stuff. No, they're actively participating in good things, in holy things, in righteous things, in life transformation. I was thinking as I was working through this message about some, some types of violence that we experience in our society, right? Um, and more so, our response, like I said, in this room, there's probably people who have a different position and different idea about what God has called them to as a believer in response to violence. There's probably somebody in this room who believes that total pacifism is the right way to go. And I'm not going to discredit that, and I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. Because what I believe is the Holy Spirit has probably talked to you and communicated that that is the way for you to love God most holy. For you to be totally a pacifist. Never to engage in violence. For others of us, we kind of take a position of a a kind of a, a righteous violence or a just war kind of philosophy. That is, when there's ultimate violence happening around us, we must in good conscience, respond with an equal and adequate enough violence to stop that violence from persisting. That that's unrighteous violence. To say, that violence can't continue anymore. It's, it's unrighteous. It's not good. It's unholy. So in order to stop that, I must be at least violent enough to stop that from happening. And others of us operate out of this kind of blind optimism. And we just think, oh, the violence is, if I don't focus on it, it'll just kind of go away. I don't like to read the news and watch all the headlines. I don't like to know all that stuff going on. If I don't think about it, I don't have to deal with it, right? And we just kind of hope, like, I trust it'll go away one day. These are our responses to violence. These are these ways that we cope with violence. Even in Christianity, you can have all three of these. So what does it mean then, as a body of believers, if if the scriptures are true, and, and they are, that we are one body, that the church is one unit to move and respond as instruments for Christ and for the kingdom of God on this earth, what does it mean, and how do we do that if we've got different definitions of how we respond to things? If we look at things from different perspectives and have different ideas, I think culturally, we have a pretty pathetic understanding of violence. I think Jesus' response to violence isn't either one of those responses fully. Here again, just like the Old Testament, God is angry, and the New Testament, Jesus is loving and kind, is a disservice to God because we've split him in two. Same thing with the the act of violence response. See, Jesus' response to violence isn't a... ignorance to it or ignoring it. Jesus' response isn't, I'm going to act like it's not happening and just wait till it goes away. But equally, Jesus' response is not, I'm going to engage with it and be just as violent as it is. Instead, Jesus' response to violence is the cross. Jesus' response to violence wasn't engaging himself in more violence, but instead taking all of the violence upon himself. Jesus' response to an unjust and violent world and seeing it happening in the life of someone else else wasn't to say, I must be as violent to this person to stop that from happening. 
who's doing that to that person. No, instead he said, I'm going to distract them from that person and focus all the attention on me. Jesus takes the violence on himself. All of it. Every bit of it. Even more violence than we probably think regularly that there is. Jesus takes the violence upon himself. And he did it through the cross. He did it through his death and his resurrection. And he did it while he was living. We see the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And as the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees surrounded her, ready to stone her and kill her for this act of adultery, Jesus steps in and begins to write on the dirt. And naturally, everybody's like, what the heck is this guy doing? Writing in the dirt. Like, we're trying to take care of this right here. He's over here writing in dirt. He focuses all the attention on him. He grabs all that hatred, all that venom, all that animosity and says, look at me. Jesus' response to violence is to bring the violence towards him. To take it in so that we don't have to endure it. Some of the some of the things of violence in our society, like I said, I think we have a pretty pathetic idea about the vastness of violence. If I were to take a poll in this room right now, and we were to kind of list out some things that we see as violent things in our society, one of them would probably be physical abuse, right? It's a violent thing. It's not good. It's not right. It's not holy. It's bad. Another one would be emotional abuse, right? Just because there's not physical marks doesn't mean it's not damaging on the inside. Abuse is abuse. Murder, obviously bad, harmful. Hateful speech, here again. Don't see the physical signs, but it's hurtful on the inside. It damages the psyche and the emotions of people. These are all damaging things. War, obviously. War is not the intended outcome. When God created the world, he didn't institute war as a holy thing. No, God created the world in peace. War was created as a result of sin and man's vengefulness to be like God. Sexual assault is another one. These are some of the areas that we see that are, and, and if we said these are things that are violent in society, and there's many more, right? And we could break these down into extra categories and subcategories and talk and list through all the, the different ways that these can be played out as violent things. It's violent. The violence of the world. But as we, as we look at Scripture, on the whole, right? Genesis through Revelation, the whole thing. And we read the stories of God's people. And we read the ways that God engages with the world around him. There is so much more that Jesus sees as harmful and violent in the world than just these things. God sees disease as violent. Right? Because, or because disease wreaks havoc on bodies. It destroys what he created to be good and holy. Right? Even though in these examples on the screen, these are things that a person does to another person. Right? That's how we describe and define violence. It's what one person can do to another person. That is violence. 
But God's expansion of that is so much broader because it's not just what a person does to a person, but it's anything that damages the image of God that is innate in human beings. So disease is violent. It's not how God intended for it to be. We're two years into a pandemic, global pandemic, coronavirus. We've got flu, we've got uh, hepatitis, we've got all these things. Those are violent, horrible, awful things. God doesn't desire them. And God moves in response to them too. But not just these. There's another one that comes to mind that we don't often think about as being violent. Starvation. World hunger is violent. Why is it violent? Because people die. And we could talk about all the economics. I'm not here to give an economic lesson. I don't know enough about the economics. I don't have all the solutions from a geopolitical landscape about what we do in response to violence in that regard or in response to starvation. But I know that starvation is violent. And it pains the heart of God. Because he sees it as destruction. He sees it as chaos running rampant in the lives of people. And so God responds to it. Let's take a look back at that Luke passage, Luke chapter 6. If you have your Bible there, um, your Bible probably has some like headers that kind of break down the section for you. Those aren't always great ways to understand what's going on, but oftentimes they're pretty good um, to kind of help uh, give a synopsis of what's happening in that passage. And so mine, and your translation might say something similar. My translation here says uh, at the header right before verse 27, love your enemies, right? So we can look at that and say, that's what that section is about, loving your enemies, right? He's got a message there about what it means to love your enemies. And then right below it, the last two verses that we read today, 37 and 38, are under another section called do not judge, right? But as we look at this, this passage, of all the way, verses 27 through 38. We can really break this into to two sections. Um, not too dissimilar from where this Bible breaks them up, but, but a little bit nuanced. The first half of this passage um, is pretty self-reflective. It's all about loving your enemies, right? It's all about um, what do you do in response to somebody who does something bad to you, right? The golden rule is presented in there. Right? Do to others what you would have them do to you. Right? That's, that's kind of the philosophy there. Is, it's kind of this response, give and take thing. I'm going to do so that it's done back to me. Right? We want the world to be a better place, so I do in order that the world reflects the way I'm doing things. It's kind of self-reflective. And the second section uh, ramps it up a little bit more. He says we're not just to do good, because I want people to do good towards me, right? It's not just about the reward I get. But the reason I'm called to do good is because God does good. No other reward needed. God made me to look like him, to reflect him, and God does good, therefore I do good. That's all there is to it. I'm made to do good. I'm called to do good. I'm expected to do good because of who he made me to be. Not because of the reward, not because I received something from it, but because 
It's who I'm made to be. The ultimate norm—sorry, uh, the ultimate norm of life—is not to do unto others as you would have them done to you. Right? That's the golden rule. Right? This is this might ruffle some feathers here. The ultimate norm and the goal of life is not to do to others so that they do to you the same. The ultimate norm of life is to do as God does. That's it. Do as God does. The golden rule is great, right? But what we do when we make these, these short little uh, sound bites, these pithy little statements, is we often lose some of the extra power that surrounds those, right? If, if anybody's written papers or they're into English and writing and stuff like that, you know that you can write a really powerful quote that sounds really good over here, but where the power comes for that quote isn't in just itself. It's in all the stuff that surrounds it, that moves towards it. I remember as a, as a young student, I had a really difficult time studying, um, particularly like reading books and stuff, and I still don't. I don't mark my books at all. I hate highlighting them. I hate underscoring any of that stuff, partly because I just don't think it looks nice, and I like them to look pretty. Uh, I don't dog ear them e either. Please don't dog ear your books. I have spent time in these pews. Let me tell you, I've spent time straightening out the dog ears in these Bibles in these pews. I'm just telling you right now. And that's just for free. That's not, I'm not even getting paid to do that. That's just for free because I think it just drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, yeah. Uh, is that what it is? Okay, good, good. So a as a young student, I remember very actively thinking, I can't, I don't even know what to highlight. Because when I read this sentence, this seems really important. And it seems like something I'm going to need to know for that test, or it seems like it's something I'm going to need to know for that exam. But so does the sentence before it. Because if I don't understand that sentence before it, then the sentence after it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then I do it on and on and on and on and on, and now all of a sudden I've highlighted a whole chapter. And that's not terribly effective. But the reality is, is that when we pull things and isolate them, we have to be sure that we're mindful of the surrounding from which it comes. Right? So the golden rule is important, and it's great. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's a great philosophy to, to say and to teach, especially the children, to break this kind of concept down into a way that they can understand. You don't want somebody to punch you in the face, so don't punch them in the face, right? Simple, easy. But the call to a relationship, surrender to God, is so much more than I don't want to get punched in the face, so I'm not going to punch somebody else in the face. The call to a relationship to God, with God, is do as God does. Do as he does. Be as he is. Go where he goes. Verse 38, it's on the screen here of that Luke passage. says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, for a long time, I read this passage, and, and the image that came to my mind was like a tape measure, right? Because when I see the word measure, that's what I think of, is measuring something, creating the, the size and the width and dimensions of it. But this measure is, is most likely referring more to like a measure of grain, 
right? And that's why it says that the measure, a good measure, a good portion of the grain is pressed down and shaken together. And then it runs over. I think about my kids are six and three. Uh, They love to do puzzles. They also love to break the boxes that the puzzles go in. Right? Uh, So we have a lot of plastic Ziploc bags that hold our puzzles because our boxes are all broken and falling apart and they don't hold puzzles anymore. But inevitably, what happens with those plastic bags is when it gets time to clean up the puzzle, we say, all right, go grab the bag, put the puzzle inside of it, and they get a third of the pieces in there, and they say, it's full! I can't fit anymore! And they try to put one in there haphazardly, and they like, it falls out. See? See? Right? And then I look at them, right? You parents all know. The look I give, I'm like, are you serious right now? So I grab the bag, because it's easier than yelling, and I shake it. Look at all that space we got in there. Shake it. Open it up. Get those pieces to pack down a little bit. And they're like, oh, yeah, all these pieces do fit in here. Yeah. Who knew? Well, they came out of there. They'll fit back in. That's what this passage is talking about, though. It's not just that I put three pieces in, and I can't fit any more because I've haphazardly put them in there. And they're all blocking each other from sitting anymore. No, it's, it's compressed. Everything's shaken down. So there's no more room left in that bag. Then when it's running over, you know it's running over because it's full. Complete. Whole. It's not running over because I didn't want to create any more space. It's running over because there is no more space. The container has been filled up the brim and overflowing. The hard things in life require good to overflow from our hearts. The hard things in life, hard questions, the difficult journeys, the things you're journeying through and the things your friends and your family are journeying through require good to fill you up so much to be shaken and pressed down so that all that is left for that good, all that good to go to is just to overflow. You couldn't hold it in if you wanted to because there's no more room. You're full of goodness. Complete. Hard things require that. The violent things of this world require the goodness of the people of God to have their hearts filled. Strike that, reverse it. Require the people of God to have their hearts filled with the goodness of God. That's what we are called to do. It's who we're called to be. As I alluded to this morning, as I started, we, uh, we got done with our 30-hour famine uh, last night. Here's a picture of our group up there on the screen. And I have a lot, I have a lot that I could say uh, about this group. Um, some in that direction, uh, and some in others. Uh, some more serious, more heartfelt. Uh, some with a humbleness uh, that it blows my mind that I get to do what I get to do. 
I shared with them last night as we were wrapping up, um, we were kind of talking about some of these things. Because over the course of our time, what we do for this 30-hour famine is we, we watch some videos uh, that World Vision, the, the organization, the nonprofit organization that puts together this 30-hour famine um, does. And they go into countries and places and they videotape a, a child uh, who lives in this extreme poverty um, and lives without knowing where their next meal is coming from. And so we follow their story and we listen to their journey and we listen to stories about uh, what does school and education look like for them? What does uh, medicine and health look like for them? What does food look like for them? How often do they get to eat? And are they ever full from it? And is there any flavor to the food at all? Usually the answers are no to all of those. What does shelter look like? What does it look like to have a, a, a roof over your head and safety and security? What does it look like to live in a, a society that every time you try to get ahead, it seems like you get knocked back down again? You can't ever get that advantage because there's always something new that comes and knocks that advantage away from you. And now you're back at square one or maybe even worse off than you were before. Even with all the hard work and determination. And as we watch these videos, we spend time reading scripture, and we spend time reflecting, and we spend time praying, and we spend time asking God some of these hard questions, struggling together, saying, man, I just, you know, I don't understand. I don't understand how, how someone could live in those kind of circumstances. I don't understand how I got so fortunate to not be in those circumstances just because I was born somewhere else. To not have to travel miles every day to get fresh water and then have to carry that fresh water back home. And I sat there after all of our conversations and as we're getting ready to wrap up and I asked each one of the students to share one thing that they're taking away from the famine. One thing that they've learned and they all had their insights and ideas. I said, well, you know what? I want to tell you mine. I said, I've done this twice now as a teenager. I did it when I was a teen twice now as, a, as an adult leading the group. And I said, you know what gives me so much excitement and so much hope? And they were sitting right here. I said, it's you all. Because I see the way that your hearts respond to this violence in the world. I see the way your hearts respond to the injustices that go on around you. The way you respond when your friend is struggling, the way you respond when you see a stranger suffering. So that gives me hope. So one day I won't be the youth pastor at Wapak Naz. You guys will either fire me or I'll die, one way or another. I won't be here one day. I said, but you all, you all will be continuing the work of the kingdom of God long after I'm gone. You know what gives me hope about the kingdom of God? You all. There is no way that I could respond personally to all of the violence in the world around us as much as I might want to. As much as I have a tendency to try to take everything on myself. As much as I love superheroes and I see the way that those caped heroes of myth take on all the struggles of humanity. 
can't do it by myself. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the finances. I don't have the insights. I don't have the ideas. I don't have the, any of it. But it's together. It's together that God calls us to be people who respond to the violence in the world around us. The hard things require our hearts to be filled with the goodness of God. And they require us to move in response. As many of you know, the teens uh, were asking for donations to raise money over the course of the event. Um, And at the conclusion of the event, we raised $1,795. And to break that down for us, $40 feeds a kid for an entire month through this organization. So if you just looked at the month to kid ratio, that'd be 38 kids for the next month won't know what hunger looks like. 38 kids and their families, right? Because what happens to a kid also impacts the family. 38 kids won't know what hunger looks like for the next month. Or if you break it down to the year, it's about $480 feeds a kid for an entire year. 3.74 kids are fed for the next year as a result of that work. As a result of a willingness to respond to the violence in the world and a willingness to do good actively. Right? You could look at not eating food as an absence of doing anything, right? I just chose not to eat food. But as I told them all through that 30 hours, that's not what we're doing here. A fast isn't about just not eating food. It's, about, it's not just about removing, it's about actively doing something. Actively pursuing God deeper and better. And as a result of their response, we did that. As a result of our response, Wapak Naz, the greater church across the globe, imagine the impact. When we're willing to do good and respond to violence, even with our different ways that we want to respond to violence, because sometimes we need a different response. Sometimes my tendency, the response I want to make, isn't the right response we need to have. We need that. We need each other. God's got wonderful things in store. Greater things are yet to come than have been done already. But it requires us to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to be committed to loving our neighbor actively, pressing into the awkward, the uncomfortable, the violent places, and choosing to do good. Would you go to God in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are our model. You are the ideal. You are the measuring place for what it means to do good, to be good, to act good. God, I I mean it. I'm not just blowing motivational smoke here. 
that I'm encouraged when I see the way these people respond to others. I'm encouraged when I see the way that they respond in encouragement and grace and love and compassion. Because I know that they're responding to the work of the Holy Spirit in their own lives. That the goodness of God is filling them up and as a result they have nothing else to do but to let it flow out from inside them. So God, may you continue to fill us up. May you give us that good measure. May we not be content with a half full bag and say, ah, it's full enough. But may we press it down. May we compact it. And may we move in the goodness of God into the lives of people who are hurting, who are suffering, who are lost and in the darkness. Jesus, we love you. And we do ask, as we always do, that you continue to make us more like you today than we even were like you yesterday. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank you for listening to the Wapak Nas podcast. We hope you are moved deeply to step into God and the hope and future he has for you and that you are moved to be salt, light, and yeast in your community and to love people to Jesus.